Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Thursday, September 9th. From The Recount, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. My guest today is Joe Cannon, the internationally best-selling author of nine novels, soon to be ten. Among those novels are Los Alamos, which won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, The Good German, which was made into a film starring George Clooney and Kate Blanchett, Alibi, which earned Cannon the Hammett Award of the International Association of Crime Writers, Leaving Berlin, and The Defectors, both of which I highly recommend. He's also the recipient of the Anne Frank Human Writers Award for his writings on the aftermath of the Holocaust. Before becoming a full-time writer, Joe was a book publishing executive. I should mention as well that we've been friends for many, many years, perhaps too many years. Anyway, without further ado, here we go. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. It's great to be here. We always start with how did you get from there to here? Let's start with Los Alamos, winner of the Edgar Prize on your very first book. How did you come to write Los Alamos? What's the origin of that book? Well, I think it's I became a sort of poster boy for midlife career change. <laughs> I had worked in publishing all my life. I liked it. I never anticipated not working in publishing. But it so happened that I went on vacation with my wife to the Southwest. And because I'm interested in World War II, we were in Santa Fe. And I said, gee, let's go see Los Alamos. It's only 40 miles away. It'll be interesting. Well, it turned out to be much more interesting than I anticipated. It just captured my imagination. I thought this is a perfectly ordinary, all-American style town. It could be anywhere. And yet, during the war, it was the most secret place on Earth. And the local museum that features driver's license made out to numbers and some of the security measures that would be taken. And I thought, this place did not technically exist. Mm -hmm. You went to Los Alamos, you fell off the planet. You didn't go home for Thanksgiving. People wrote you to a post office box. You didn't exist. And it was at that moment that I had one of those light bulbs over the head. And I thought, what would happen if there had been a crime? How would they go about solving it in a place that technically does not exist? Police are not allowed up on the Mesa. You know, how would they go about investigating it? And in fact, how would people feel about it in that kind of very hothouse environment? I thought this is a good idea, or I thought it was a good idea. And who can I give it to who's looking for an idea? 
And nobody was at that precise moment. And I got more and more involved in it. This was the summer of 95. So it was the 50th anniversary of Hiroshima. And there was a lot of stuff in the press about the project, which I had been studying. And it seemed to me that it was skewed and they'd got it slightly wrong. We were carrying 50 years of nuclear baggage with us to this 50-year anniversary. And I was of that generation that had to duck under my desk in school and go through air aids, etc. We grew up under the mushroom cloud. And I thought, but the people that put it there are now being described as a kind of bunch of Dr. Strangeloves who went out to the middle of the desert to plot the end of the world and to scare all of us kids. And that's very far from what it really had been. It was much more complicated. You know, the average age of the scientists on the Manhattan Project was 27. And Oppenheimer himself was just turning 40 at this point. And I thought, they were kids. This was a kind of Silicon Valley of the 1940s. And many of the reasons for being on the project were legitimate and even admirable. And I thought, here you have an interesting theme. What happens when good people do supposedly the right thing for supposedly good or the right reasons, and yet they create this appalling legacy that is handed down to us forever. It seemed to me a really fascinating topic for a book, and I thought, well, why don't you do it? But since I was in publishing, I did it secretly because I figured <laughs> what could be more embarrassing than a publisher who can't write? <laughs> so I made it my secret project and didn't tell anybody. And then we have a happy ending to the story, which is that I did finish the book, and it did very well, and I discovered that I loved doing it, so I was able to swap the other side of the desk and change careers, I guess. And now here we are, 10 books later. All of your work is World War II and thereafter Cold War. What draws you to that period? You know, one thing leads to the next, and the Los Alamos story struck me as an absolutely fascinating one, and particularly when Oppenheimer is involved, because I think he's one of the great figures of the century. But what kept me there through several books is that I really think that immediate post-war period is the hinge of the century, of the last century, and in a sense, the beginning of our time. I mean, I was born in 46, so I'm a pure baby boomer. It's nine months after VJ Day. Everything that happens in that period become somehow more important than the people actually making the decisions at that time. You know, we're very fond of saying that anything that we think is important in our own time is a seminal moment and a real turning point in history. And to some extent, that's true, because all points in your own history are going to be interesting. But you need some time and space between so that you can get some perspective on it to see what really is going on. We're 20 years away from 9-11. I wonder how we'll feel 50 years away from 9-11. But we are certainly more than 50 years away from the first atomic bomb exploding. And I believe that everything is different before and after. It isn't just a bigger bow and arrow or a bigger grenade. This was a weapon that offered the possibility of self-annihilation. That truly is new. And it's extraordinary. And it means that we're going to have to rethink the way we deal in the world, or we should anyway, we think. <laughs> Whether we do or not is another issue. One of the authors who inhabits, I guess, the post-World War II era as well as any is John le Carré. Now that he's gone, how did he inform everybody else's work? Oh, there's no question that le Carré is really the godfather 
of the contemporary espionage novel. I'm one of many, many admirers. Everyone has taken from him and everyone has learned from him. And it's difficult now to remember what things were like before. Espionage and the Cold War were made for each other. Hmm. This was a time where even though there were several proxy wars that would happen around the rest of the world, the essential confrontation between the Soviet Union and the West was happening through the intelligence agencies. They were really the foot soldiers in this war. And consequently, anything set during that period about espionage takes on a different cast than it did 10 or 20 years before then. We also had the growth of the great bureaucracies. I think that one of Le Carre's great gifts to the genre is that he brought people in from the cold. They were no longer in a trench coat under some lamp, a drizzly evening, actually out there meeting somebody. They were often in an office, which is where most of this work happens. And I thought that his bringing office life and the kind of contemporary bureaucracy that exists in these agencies was an unexpected boon and a gift. It completely upended the sort of James Bond style thrillers and grounded it, made it more realistic. It also, frankly, made it a little easier for those of us who have never actually been a spook, although when you say that, people always say, well, of course you would say that. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's, there's no arguing with that. Yeah, we don't want to go there, I don't think. But whenever I want to reference anything that's going on in the books, that is, with the intelligence agencies, I just think of offices where I've worked. And if you transpose what office life is like in one building, it pretty much is like that in another. And it makes it slightly easier. Another writer who seems to inform your work is Graham Greene. What influence did he have in the writing of your 10 novels? Well, I think an enormous one. It is certainly true that whenever you are compared to him, it's the highest praise that I can imagine. It's, you know, if there's a reviewer that says that, even in passing, you just think, well, I owe you. You know, this is a wonderful thing to say. He's a terrific writer. Most people, when they talk about thrillers or his entertainments are essentially really remembering The Third Man, which I think may be the best of all espionage movies ever. But aside from that, there's the rest of the body of his work. He's a serious writer. He's involved and very concerned with moral ambiguities and ethical issues. And I think, A, I am too, but I think that most people who write in this genre grapple with this in one way or another. I think that any writing that reports to a level of seriousness is really about character. And it's, you know, who, who are these people? Who are they really? It's the ultimate mystery story is who other people are. I suppose it's even a mystery who we ourselves are, but I'm much more interested in, in this point in my life than the others, <laughs> trying to figure them out. And solving those mysteries is essentially what literature does. If you think now about books that you read during the formative years, you never remember the plots, but you do remember the people. And if they sit there in your mind and take on a life, this is what writing can do. Opens the door to everything. I think it's really wonderful. Green, I think, is a master at delineating character in, you know, he can do it in a few brushstrokes. He's really good. What happens on the page is extraordinary, sentence by sentence. You know, in a page and a half, he can put you somewhere. The Congo. Vietnam, wherever he needs to be. I think he's a truly remarkable writer. But whenever one is compared with him, it's essentially on this issue of moral ambiguity. And that 
was very pleasing to me because it's one of the things I try to do in the books. There was a reviewer who said at one point that my books were novels of moral intrigue. And I thought it was a perfect description that I hadn't thought of, or otherwise I would have told it to the publisher to put it on the jacket. (laughs) But once we did have it, it clicked into place for me and began to make a lot of sense about what I was trying to do in these books. You want to entertain. You want to tell a story. You want people to enjoy themselves. But you also want them to think a little bit and maybe to ask questions and dig at how things are not as clear cut as we might think. There's a line in one of my books, I think in Istanbul Passage, where the character says, what do you do when there's no right thing to do? Just two things that are not quite right, that are wrong. How do you navigate that back and forth? I think that we're presented with situations like that all the time in daily life. And what novels can do is heighten it and give it a kind of vividness that you're really confronted with this issue. What if it were you? What would you do in that situation? I think that those are questions worth asking. You know, Graham Greene is uh, famous, is not the right word. The work just gives you this wonderful sense of place, and your work gives this wonderful sense of place so that in Istanbul Passage, for instance, you really have a sense that you're on the street there by the Bosporus and stuff. And I wondered... How is it that you do that? Do you physically go and sort of scope out these cities? Yeah, I've done it with all of the books. I mean, Istanbul Passage is a classic example of how some of my books begin, because they actually begin with place. I went there as a tourist because I was interested and just immediately fell in love with it, which is not unusual. Practically everybody who goes does. It's you know a fascinating world city. But when I would read about it, the history would end with Ataturk, and it would end in the 20s and 30s, and didn't go to that period that has always interested me. And I thought, well, what was it like? So I started reading about it and studying it, and I discovered that it being a neutral capital, it was a great listening post all during the war, and a hotbed of espionage. And if you went to the Park Hotel bar, for instance, there would be somebody from a German intelligence agency, there's an MI6, there's an American, there's a Japanese. And I thought, my God, it's the real-life Rick's Cafe. <laughs> it wasn't just happening in Casablanca, it was happening here. And then I thought, so what happens when that's over? Do these people just go home and talk about how much fun it was at the Park Hotel? I therefore went back. So, I mean, your real question is, do I go to the place? Yes. Istanbul, I think I went five times. It was just a great excuse to go and spend time there. Berlin is another place that, for whatever reasons, just spoke to me. I have now set three of my books there. The one that's coming, called The Berlin Exchange, is the third. And the first was The Good German, which is set in the immediate aftermath of World War II, so Mm -hmm. 1945. And the second is called Leaving Berlin, which is set during the airlift. And this current one is set after the wall has gone up. So if I keep going with it, I may actually write a contemporary novel about the <laughs> It just seems to me one of those places that captures the imagination. And I'm just, I'm never through with it. There's always more. And you walk around, I call it location scouting, because one of the things I do with all of the books is I want to know where the characters live. What kind of apartment could you have afforded? Could you take a tram to work? If it's post-war Germany, did you need a Jeep to get there? Was it walking distance? I think that it's not necessarily that all of these things are going to be conveyed to the reader, but you have to see them in your mind if you're going to write about these places accurately. 
Plus, it gives me a great excuse to travel more. I was going to say, that's probably one of the highlights of it, right? You get to go to great cities. Absolutely. And you, you, you have to be on the ground. You really want to just walk around and get the feel of it. It's not a question of, yes, I do lots of book research, some archival research, etc. But I don't go to Berlin to sit and chat with somebody over a beer. I mean, I go because I really want to get a sense of the place and its physicality so that you can describe it best. I want to ask about The Good German. It was made into a movie with George Clooney and Kate Blanchett, A-listers. Take us through how that played out. Well, you know, the typical experience for writers, and I had seen, when I was on the publishing side of the desk, I had seen many writers go through this. They sell the book to the movies, and famously, this has been going on since the 1930s, they all think that the movie is completely ruining the book, and, you know, what they're expecting is some kind of illustrated version of what they have already got in their heads. And I thought, if it ever happens to me, I will be sensible and grown up and good about this and not say you're ruining my baby and etc. But then you read the script and there isn't a single line from the book. <laughs> you know, this is really difficult. Nevertheless, I thought, look, I'm not looking for some visual equivalent. All you can hope is that the material inspires the director and the writer in some ways to create a movie that works on its own. I don't know how well the movie actually did, I suspect, not so well. What I'm hoping is that it becomes a cult classic and we can continue selling the paperback. <laughs> it's an odd experience, though. The nice part of it was that everybody involved in this picture was really A-list. Steven Soderbergh directing George Clooney and Kate Blanchett. As a writer, you could not ask for better people being involved in the project. It also had a special kind of resonance for me because I was at that point researching and about to start writing a book that I wrote called Stardust about Hollywood during the McCarthy period. Mm -hmm. This was like found gold to me to be able to visit the set because Soderbergh wanted to do this movie the way it might have been done in the 1940s, which is exactly what I was writing about. Right. So when I would go to visit, see a scene being shot, he was even using cameras that were available then and people were in period costume. So it was time traveling. I was literally back in 1946-47. No other experience could have replicated this for me. So I'll always be grateful for that. But I wish they had used a little more. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Joe Cannon. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Welcome back to the podcast. We're talking with Joe Cannon. Why do you think period stories are still relevant? Well, there are two parts to this. One is strictly the technical one, that is from a writer's point of view. You know, technology has played merry hell with the espionage novel. If you have two people meeting on a park bench, one of whom is passing papers to the other, it is an inherently dramatic situation. Are they being observed? Is there paranoia? What's going on with the people? Now, often what we have is somebody typing on a keyboard and communicating with a screen, and you have to really make the stakes vivid to make that one inherently dramatic. It's harder. I think in some odd way, what's old is new. An old style Cold War spy story has more suspense. When you have technology that sees and knows everything, what's hidden? It's very difficult. Now, the other part of the question is, why is it relevant? I think that many of these books, or at least uh, I hope mine, and I hope many others that I enjoy and read, are trying to, if not memorialize, at least make us constantly aware of lessons that should be learned. I think that they're relevant now because the kind of decisions that people were making and the kind of moral compromises that they were making are very similar to what we're making. I think that people who do not know about the Holocaust are doomed to not understand history. Right. You've got to know what happened in that it isn't just your time, it isn't just your life. All of these things, we may not learn from history specifically, and we may always see that situations are particular. They're not necessarily replicable the same way. But the motivations behind them often are. I think that when we see things that are coming out of the playbook from the rise of fascism, we ought to be able to recognize them like that with the click of your fingers, because if, we, if we're not quick in recognizing it, we're going to let it happen. Your next book is out in January. Tell us about the Berlin Exchange. The exchange referred to initially is a spy swap. One of those things, not on the Bridge of Spies, but in the Lidenstrasse, which was one of the other checkpoints. And it's a nuclear scientist spy who is being traded in for a few others, and he's moving to East Berlin, where his ex-wife lives. This is the first of what will be several or many exchanges in the book, including a final exchange that would I would spoil it to talk about that, so we wouldn't. But one of the other exchanges that appears throughout as a kind of background motif is something that I learned when I was doing research for this book in East Berlin. I had no idea that they had traded political prisoners for hard currency. They had, that the East Germans literally were selling these prisoners back to the West Germans. It would be 40,000 Deutschmarks a person, which is roughly $10,000 a person. The estimates vary as to how extensive this was. At least one estimate, the biggest estimate that I came across, was that something like over 33,000 political prisoners and more than 200,000 citizens who were reunited with their families crossed over for a total value of something like 3.4 billion Deutschmarks, which is almost a billion dollars. That's an extraordinary amount of money. Now, the source for this was Marcus Wolf, who was the foreign head of the Stasi, so I don't know that he's the most reliable. <laughs> On the other hand, I don't think, why, why would he lie about this? Right. And there are other estimates. I mean, I don't think we'll ever know the exact figure, but whichever it is, it's still a substantial contribution to... East Germany's operating budget. I thought this was an amazing piece of background information that I had never come across before. It's not much covered. We don't talk about it much. 
And I thought, on both sides, there is such moral compromise involved. I mean, are you giving hard currency to a regime you're hoping will fail? I mean, most of these people who are political prisoners are prisoners because they're trying to get out. Right. So by putting up the wall, you're creating a new revenue stream, essentially. It just seemed to me that everybody involved in this enterprise was somehow tainted or at least touched by what wasn't quite right about it. And it seemed to me that this also underlied so much of the relationship between East and West Germany. East Germany is an absolutely fascinating place. And now that one can go easily and go around it, it's still very much, the look of it is still very much the way it was during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Not the immediate post-war because they cleared up all the debris, but it's certainly, there are parts of it that still look like 1963. You expect to see the, the wall somewhere down the road. It's a fascinating place to go. You can go to Stasi headquarters, which is now a museum. You can go to the holding prison, which had been much feared. Now it's another memorial of that sort. You can go to Sachsenhausen. I mean, all of these things are still there and still reminders of what a peculiar place this was. It was such an anomaly. Nobody ever anticipated that there would be an East Germany. And once there was, it was only the East Germans that were fighting to keep it alive. It was for everyone else kind of bargaining chip. You know, I wanted to write about it. I thought, what happens when your society is hijacked by gangsters, by people you don't agree with? How do you lie low in a situation where every everything in life is permeated by the state or by your own alienation from it? But oddly enough, what actually got me started on the book, there's always some little quirky thing that gives you the light bulb over the head. Right. and in this particular case, what it was, there's a friend of mine who grew up in East Berlin and who was, in fact, um, a child star, a child actor. And I thought this was so extraordinary. I thought, what was that like? <laughs> I mean, it's already peculiar to be a child star in Hollywood, but imagine being a child star in East Berlin. And the more I looked into it, the more I discovered that there was this vibrant film and television life there because the East had inherited most of the studio infrastructure after the war. So they're the ones that had the equivalent of the Hollywood studios. And they built new studios for television, and off they went. You know, lots of movies, lots of TV, none of which have been seen, or only a few of which have been seen by us, and even a few of which have been seen by West Germans. It was a sort of totally local industry. So I thought, well, this is so interesting. I want to write about it. and. One thing led to another, and then you get into the larger story of East Berlin. So what I hope the book is, is a reflection of life in East Berlin after the wall went up and before the 80s when things were very different because it was coming to a close. You know, in 1963, when this is set, nobody thought the wall was going to come down. Everybody assumed that the DDR was going to be a permanent fact of life. So supposing you're there living on Karl Marx Alley, and not anticipating any change that in fact later happened. How would you deal with it? You know, how do you live that way? When do we get the Beijing exchange? Well, and you have not been prompted to ask this, so I, <laughs> I can tell you, you're now going to be the first to know. The book that I'm currently working on is set in Shanghai. Uh -huh. So you won't get Beijing, but you will get Shanghai. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think you've asked everything that I like to answer. <laughs> I find that what's, what's hard is that I think people like to know about process. 
they like to know how people write and what your expectations are when you do it. Why do you write? I think it's a legitimate question to ask any writer. What are you trying to accomplish? How would you like the books to be known? And I think the answer to that is, uh, at least for me, is I hope that people have been entertained. I hope they've enjoyed reading the books. But I also hope that they've come away asking some questions about the nature of this material and the nature of any kind of moral compromise. How do we navigate our way through this? I, th I think that all books that I admire are essentially books that address the question, how do we live? How should we live? I'm not claiming that a thriller has the answers to some of these questions. I mean, they're questions that have been asked forever. But if you stop asking them, what happens to you? It's important for our books to keep making us think and keep making us ask questions about the moral decisions that we make. Joe, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you very, very much for joining us. And we look forward to the publication of Berlin Exchange in January 2022. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Ben McNamara. We'll see you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.